0: Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Welcome back to another episode of The Metabolic Link. I'm your host, Dom D'Agostino, and today we are interviewing uh, Nicole Laurent. Nicole and I had a great conversation recently in Miami at the Metabolic Psychiatry Retreat. And it was really uh, fantastic to catch up with her there and uh, on this podcast. So Nicole is a licensed mental health counselor in Washington state. She graduated from Argosy university with a master's in clinical psychology in 2007, and has provided psychotherapy for over 15 years in her practice. She completed postgraduate training in nutrition and also in integrative health from Maryland university uh, of integrative health. Nicole assists patients with the ketogenic diet and also other metabolic therapies specifically for mental illness and neurological disorders as an adjunct to psychotherapy. And she also works to educate the public uh, through education outreach regarding ketogenic diets with her blog, uh, which is mentalhealthketo.com. She's also very prolific on social media Uh, especially on Twitter. And she's done a number of podcasts that I listened to prior to doing this one with her. And she also develops online programs to increase public accessibility to metabolic and nutritional therapies. So uh, please watch and listen, enjoy uh, this podcast with Nicole Laurent. Thank you. Great, Nicole. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this interview. I'm so excited to talk to you today. And I think we have so much ground to cover and I sent you just a few topics off the top of my head, but there are so many things beyond, you know, yeah. which just on, on top of my head uh, based upon our discussion that we had recently in Miami and, and the amazing work that you're doing uh, not only with patients, but also really spearheading and putting a lot of information out there in what I would call education outreach. So, um, so maybe I'll just like to revisit the conversation that we had over dinner and you were telling me a little bit about what you were doing and your path to that. And, uh, it was also really exciting to see that you, uh, got a metabolic mind award. Yeah. So maybe you could tell some of our listeners sort of your, your path to this journey that you're on and, and helping patients and, and how that led to the award and everything that you're doing.
1: Yeah, it just, it all kind of unfolded. So I, um, in in graduate school, I developed a chronic pain syndrome uh, called trigeminal neuralgia, which is uh, a lot of face sensitivity and pain. And I ended up getting daily migraines and did all the physical therapy and tried to do all the things they told me to do. And then ultimately I had a doctor Tell me you're just going to have to go on pain pills because there's just we don't have another treatment for this. So I remember like crying in the office, just kind of being sort of terrified because I just really wanted to just feel better. And uh, that kind of pain is very grating over time Uh, every day to have a migraine or to have face sensitivity uh, the wind blowing on your face, you know, causing uh, really a lot of pain was a lot. And I was tr- getting through, trying to get through my graduate program in clinical psychology. It happened my first semester into graduate school. Um, so I went on the pain medication. And uh, I eventually had to figure out how to treat my own condition. So would you uh, mind
0: telling, uh, yeah, what pain, pain medication? you were on. And, uh, and also what, if you don't mind, uh, I have a real high interest in pain because I actually think ketogenic therapies and ketones may help with pain for for different reasons. But maybe if uh, you could give a little insight, just because I'm very interested in what triggered the trigeminal neuralgia and also what pain medications like Neurontin or or whatever they put you on. Oh my
1: gosh, they had me on all the cocktails over time. So I was suffering with this pain condition probably over 10 years. Um, well, 10 years stuck on the pain medication. Um, so they had me on everything. They had me on, uh, they, they had me on gabapentin. Mm -hmm. They had me on hydrocodone at first. And apparently I am one of those people who habituate to it very, very quickly. So everybody does.
0: Yeah. yeah. Gabapentin, you know, there's, uh, yeah. It stops working really fast and you have to escalate the dosage, um, yeah. or yeah. And, and opioids and especially gabapentin surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, well, I yeah. didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah I yeah. didn't know anything about them. And, and, um, so I, eventually I was on this ginormous dose of morphine. Like I'm a pretty small human and I was on a huge dose of morphine and they're like, we just can't take you up anymore. And I still had pain. So I was, um, So I was very motivated and I came across uh, information on a neurostimulator, a neurostimulator Mm -hmm. operation, saved up for that for a couple of years because it was quite expensive. This was during the time when if you had a pre-existing condition, you couldn't get insurance, right? So I had to work towards that, got the neurostimulator that worked. Thank goodness. It was wonderful. Um, And then I was still stuck on the pain medication without the pain. And my doctors had a terrible time getting me off of it. They would try to do bridge medications on me and they wouldn't take, I would be okay for a while. And then I would end up in the emergency room thinking I was ill, really ill. And they would be like, oh no, your bridge medication didn't take, you know, we have to get you back up to your old dose, you know, stuff like that. My liver enzymes would go through the roof. They had to give me the bridge medication that they give pregnant ladies so that because there's Suboxone and Subutex. And if I remember right, I had to have Subutex for, for whatever reason. Um, And then I was stuck on that bridge medication. They couldn't get me off the bridge medication. And for anybody listening on bridge medications, those are, those are not a panacea. Those are not fun. So my life looked any
0: pain medication, any pain medication. I mean, I guess People may yeah. consider some pain medication fun, uh, you know, just because the 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 uh, euphoric effects that you get from some of them, and then that can trigger. I mean, because I get a lot of emails about people in pain, so this conversation mm-hmm. is extremely important. And pain medication and getting off pain medication can lead to depression. And anxiety, benzodiazepine, withdrawal, things like that. Yeah. So this conversation is I don't think we've been, never covered it, but I think it's a super important conversation to yeah. cover. And wait, maybe you mentioned it, but uh what triggered the the neuralgic was, was it a sudden reading. onset?
1: I think it it felt like a sudden onset. I have uh, hypermobility syndrome, the that that form. So I think it was I was really excited about my program. I was reading for really a lot like your head down, like there wasn't the computer th- and not everything was on computers back then. That's how old I am. But you know, it was it was the head down and just four to six hours of just absorbing information, I think it triggered something that I couldn't calm down, even though I tried a lot of different things.
0: I'm going to ask some questions like, do you, uh, because I've had people reach out to me with similar kinds of pain, where there may be like a viral etiology, whether it be like CMB, Epstein-Barr, C-19, not going to say that, but like other things or an infectious disease process, for example, like Lyme's disease, uh, which seems to be a root cause for some uh, neurological pain, even Alzheimer's disease and things like that. So did you, were you able to rule out any potential infectious disease, potentially a virus causing uh, or like dental work or things like that, yeah. that could have triggered I've, that? Just curious. I was
1: not, I did not. I was just in standard conventional medical care. Mm-hmm. Nobody was testing for that kind of thing for that back then. But I do, I've always been kind of, until I did the ketogenic diet, I've always been someone who's been struggled with fatigue, was very tired. Like when I was 18, I actually went on disability for chronic fatigue syndrome for two years. Out of the okay. blue. So I could have had a resurgence of, you know, Epstein-Barr, Epstein-Barr. CMV or something yep. like that, that happened yep. under the stress of graduate school. That would not surprise me at all. Yep. Um. But yeah. So, the so that's, people- that's another reason why I, uh, you know, I always thought, I always thought, well, you know, I'm just not someone with a lot of energy, or I'm just not someone who's going to be athletic, or I'm, I'm just not someone who can do these things, or I have to pace myself or uh, but really, that wasn't true at all. I just didn't have the right fuel. I didn't have the right yeah. things that I needed. Nutrition. Well, the
0: ketogenic path that you went on has been very efficacious for many people who have contacted me with Epstein-Barr, CMV, mm-hmm. HSV, a uh, couple with HIV, even uh, COVID-19 and Lyme's disease. Uh, actually, some, quite a few people with Lyme's disease. It's worked remarkably well. Uh, so just like to add that, I mean, if there's people in there struggling with different, you know, infectious diseases and and they may not know it, they have it. Uh, but everybody has, you know, these viruses and, and it's our immune system and inflammation can trigger them, uh, to, uh, it can trigger viral shedding and can trigger the onset of diseases, uh, shingles too. I've gotten quite a few people email me when they have a shingles attack, they start fasting and they start, you know, and this controls it, and it basically nips it in the bud. They might get a couple little bumps here and there, but mm-hmm. it has been uh, amazing for them yeah. from that perspective. So, yeah, just wanted to add that. I don't want to derail the conversation, but oh. I was very yeah. interested in kind of the etiology of neurological uh, pain, and and then i will give us some insight into, you know, how ketogenic diets are working. You know, yeah. and that because pain can be the root cause of anxiety. Depression, you know, pain is pathophysiologically linked to depression and mm-hmm. brain fog and all these things. Yes. so I, th- I think there's something to yeah. unpack there.
1: Experienced all of that, and so yeah. yeah, so I was stuck on the bridge medications, and my life was very kind of small and contained because I was someone who I would take the medication; it would make me kind of sleepy, um, and then I would go see clients for three hours then I would have to go home because basically when you're on bridge medication and it wears off, you feel like you got the flu. You start to get the flu. You have to run back home. I would fall asleep with my cat, Lola, take a nap with this bridge medication, eat some food, go back and see clients. And that was my days. And when we would go on vacation, I would have to plan it around this bridge medication. So it just, it really was awful. It was awful. And it was a very, Uh, limiting kind of quality of life. Uh, But that's where I was. Uh, I got the neurostimulator out um, because again, that fixed my pain. And again, I had to advocate and find that and find a surgeon and do all of that. The medical establishment did did not offer that to me as an option. And so finally, um, my husband got a job here in Vancouver, Washington, we were going to move. And my prescriber was like, Nicole, I'm really worried that you're not going to find someone to prescribe this bridge medication for you. There's a gentleman who's doing an experimental protocol for detoxification. Uh, Would you like to try it? And I was like, Oh my gosh. Yes. So I did that. Um, and, And remember these pain medications, people don't understand that they're big hormone disruptors and Over time, my cognitive function on these medications suffered. So, when I was in graduate school, I was someone who could read and then think about what I wanted to remember. And I could almost see the paragraph on the page in the book that I read it on. That was like how my brain worked. And by the end, even before the detoxification, I had a a couple come into my office who I had met a month prior. Because I was going to see their adolescent and I didn't remember them, their face. And I had trouble, uh, you know, you run the credit cards for the copays. I had trouble holding more than one or two numbers in my head at a time to punch it in. And so there was a huge discrepancy between where I started and where I was. And then I did the detoxification protocol, which was awful. And I was sure I was dying when it was happening but when I got done with that I I um, I was in really bad shape with my cognitive function. and when I look back now and, and I think about how I was functioning after the detox protocol, even three months after the detox protocol, it was brutal. I uh, had trouble getting up to go to the bathroom after that detox protocol. um so and my daughter was making my food for me like it 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 was really a bad time because not just during the detox protocol, but also, and I don't really talk about this too much, but, you know, for all those years that I was on those medications, you, it, it affects you. It affects you. Like I probably missed out out on a lot of opportunities for fun stuff with my kids for, right. Cause they make you a little tired. They make you a little blah, they make you a little unmotivated. And so it really affected, I think the, like, you know, when I look at my energy now and my ability to be present now and my ability to do all the things now, I think, oh my gosh, I was a shadow of the mom I could have been. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, we talk about these things like, oh, they're hard to get off of and, you know, people need other options, but there's collateral damage to just offering prescriptions. There's collateral damage to not offering alternative treatments that have a good evidence-based in offering those to people. Like that was the easiest thing was for the doctor to say, here, you're just going to have to take these pain meds. You're in terrible pain and we've got to fix that. And we're just going to have to manage this condition. But there was a operation that I could have been offered. There was, you know, and my doctor didn't know about a ketogenic diet. I'm pretty darn sure. But I mean, it would have been great to have that. That might've been a game changer for me. So, um, so I got off these medications. I, I, w- my brain was in even worse shape. Um, I couldn't. I had trouble reading, and uh, which was a big change from graduate school, right? And so then uh, I just kind of I was listening to podcasts, and I heard you on STEM Talk, um, talking about early Alzheimer's kind of research that was going on. You were talking about mm-hmm. the cool stuff you were doing with the divers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that piqued my interest. And, uh, and then I just kept listening to podcasts until I finally figured out how to do a ketogenic diet. My brain just turned back on and it wasn't like I just suddenly, like I am now able to find words and stuff like, but the energy kind of came on, the lights came on and I knew I was on the right track.
0: What was your diet like prior to learning about the ketogenic diet? And also like, what was your lifestyle? Like, were you exercising? Were you uh, was that part of your daily routine? Were you getting outside? Um, were you paying attention to nutrition and exercise prior to kind of going down this path?
1: Yeah. So I was seeing a very excellent functional medicine practitioner all through that period of chronic pain, and while on the pain meds and taking you know hundreds of that hundreds of dollars of supplements a month, oh. mm-hmm. trying to and it was a whole foods diet. Um, and so I no gluten, like I was taking really Mm -hmm. good care of myself. I believe I was still eating a little bit of sugar, but very, very low sugar. Um, so that was the thing is it, that didn't do the trick for me. That, that was not enough for what was going on with me. And, um, and it wasn't until I found those kind of ketogenic macros and started making ketones Mm -hmm. that, that I did so much better. And no, I wasn't working out the thing about so I love I I love that there are so many different ways to improve mitochondrial function but I have to say when your frontal lobe is not working well asking someone to get up and exercise well that makes sense and yes you can take them for a walk and you can take them for a run and you can try to get them moving but that goal directed behavior is really hard when your brain is not working. And we see that in neurodegenerative diseases, right? The, the urge to get up and move is not there. The energy is not there. And if you don't have good brain energy, you don't have good body energy. They are connected. So I had, so a lot of things kind of cleared up within the first kind of three months of my ketogenic diet. So my brain turned back on, I felt so much better. I noticed a huge change in my mood and I never considered myself kind of anxious or overwhelmed. But if you think about it, if your brain energy is really low, everything is kind of overwhelming. Right. So mm-hmm. that went away um, and I had uh, plantar fasciitis pretty bad when I did the ketogenic diet can go to, co- you know, I'd go for an hour to Costco and I'd be on the couch, elevating my foot for the rest of the day. Um, and that went away after three months and in three months after the ketogenic diet, after I got my macros, right, I joined a gym and I was doing body pump classes. And this, I was a couch potato before an absolute couch potato.
0: Were you weight stable? Like, were you always small and and lean like this or did, uh, did, I mean, cause sometimes, uh, you know, as people lose weight, all the metabolic biomarkers improved. Mm-hmm. And and then conversely, I mean, I've seen people start a keto. Nothing changes. They're eating perfect. For example, they have epilepsy, and the diet is kind of like a, as you described before. But it was really that process of getting the keto macros, getting ketones elevated, and the therapeutic state of ketosis, which yeah. was the real trigger. In yeah. in helping them. I mean, this happens, you know, in, in epilepsy. And uh it's you know, being in a state, following the ketogenic diet as it's prescribed seems yeah. to be, you know, uh it the big factor. The mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I have almost always been weight stable. My second pregnancy, I gained quite a bit of weight out of the blue. There was some metabolic issues going on there. I don't know what they were, didn't have diabetes or anything, but mm-hmm. I gained a lot of weight for me. Um, and then of course, when you are on opioids, your, uh, well, I, my appetite went down on, on the opioids. And so I got pretty thin. And then after the detox, I had trouble eating for a long time. So I was underweight when I started my ketogenic diet. Um, and I actually gained weight on my ketogenic diet, probably going up to a healthy weight. And then, um, I built lots of muscle there for a while when I was working out really regularly. So it was really good for, for me that way.
0: Mm -hmm. So this then influenced your path to, uh, you know, incorporating the ketogenic diet in what you do being Uh, a ketogenic coach and a licensed medical health, you know, clinician or practitioner in that field. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe describe that a little bit and then advice, because I get quite a few questions from students who really don't know exactly what they want to do. And they're kind of like in the middle of their, academic career and emails and also just students that I talk to and maybe some advice on how they can steer their careers because we need more people like you <laughs> and we yeah. need more people kind of in the trenches helping uh, to be that that interface too between the prescriber who may not at this time understand everything that you understand and the science behind it and just don't, they don't have the time to learn about it but they need sort of um you know, and the prescribers also, need, and that's another conversation too, how you work with prescribers uh, when you're dealing yeah. with a patient.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I, I would say I sit across from patients all the time. I'm a licensed mental health counselor um, and I do psychotherapy and I do lots of great psychotherapies, DBT, CBT, EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get all kinds of people with all kinds of varying levels of of illness going on mental illness. And so I would sit across from them and I knew the profound kind of mood shift that I experienced on a ketogenic diet. I noticed my brain worked better. uh, My memory was better. And here I am asking them to do, you know, these types of therapies are hard, like cognitive behavioral therapy. You have to identify what the automatic thought is that is feeding into a negative emotional pattern for you. I mean, that's a big cognitive load, the awareness of trying to sit there and be like, oh, what was I thinking right before this or that? Or and there's worksheets. And you know, I'm sitting here asking these people to do this and they are their brains are not working well. And I and their mood, they're very overwhelmed by the process of therapy. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you, you would benefit from this, but I cannot talk to you about it, you know? Um, so I would start with like, Hey, you should, you should, what you listen to this podcast with Dom, right? You should, you should check out these people talking about this. Um, and some of them would take to it and some of them would not, uh, you know, I have a lot of people in my office with mood disorders with where the underlying cause quite frankly is diabetes. You know, I mean, they've got a metabolic issue that is affecting their mood and their functioning, and they've got cognitive symptoms and sending them to me for psychotherapy for that. While I can be supportive and helpful, I don't think is the appropriate treatment, right? I mean, they're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, I I got really uncomfortable watching people suffer needlessly in front of me. And um, the few people that I kind of steered towards a ketogenic diet, they just did beautifully. And they, they, in, they worked with their psychotherapy in a much different way. So we got much farther and they got so much more out of it with just a slightly better working brain. And really this was the promise of medication. So when I was in graduate school and I was getting my training at my practicums, it was, you know, the first, and it's even on our licensing, um, our licensing exams are. our Yeah. Our, our testing that we get to get our license. They talk about, you, you have to answer the question where first medication, then therapy, oh, is this going on? It's not therapy first, it's medication and then therapy. That's the magical combo is what they told us is that you, you send someone for medication and their brain improves a little bit better. And then they're going to do better in therapy. That's what all the research showed, but that is not what I experienced. As a licensed mental health counselor, what I experienced is they go for medication, they come back suddenly okay with whatever was going on in their life that was not working well for them. Nothing gets resolved. Their motive motivation for doing psychotherapy goes down because they're feeling more level, but also we're not addressing any of the things. Um, And, and sometimes I would get people in my office, quite frankly, that were so over medicated, they would fall asleep in my sessions. Like Mm -hmm. I have a memory of an adolescent that did that. I couldn't carry on a conversation. So the promise of that did not pan out. But when I would do a ketogenic diet with someone and then psychotherapy, it was amazing. That was that was what I was looking forward to. And that the brains were that more was,
0: receptive to Yeah.
1: Culture. They're not overwhelmed. They do their yeah. homework. They're able to access and reason in different ways. They have the motivation to do it. Um, it just makes all the difference. So I really enjoyed putting those two together. And it started, you know, I had a I had a client that I still see who who Does not want to do the ketogenic diet. She tells me that sounds awful. She's not going to do it. She has anxiety. I've seen her for a long time. But she said to me, she said, do you even have any nutrition training to be talking to me about this? And I was like, I don't. I don't. You're right. So I went back to school and I got a postgraduate certificate in nutrition and integrative health. And then I just started taking all the trainings I could. Nutrition Network has a great one on neurology. I took some certifications for therapists about nutrition, which didn't talk about the ketogenic diet, actually gave misinformation about the ketogenic diet, which was horrible. But there's stuff out there that therapists can get so that they can talk about this stuff without being concerned for their license. Mm -hmm.
0: What resources, because I know I'm going to get this question from people that I know and and maybe you know people that are emailing me, what resources did you find were most helpful in navigating this path and getting uh, the most important information in regards to the implementation and, and the use of the ketogenic diet? outside of, uh, you know, it's standard of care, which would be kind of epilepsy and neurometabolic disorders. So Mm -hmm. which some of them we study in our lab, uh, where did you find the most helpful information and the certifications that that really helped you in, in, you know, helping patients?
1: So I didn't, I didn't learn a ton of great things from Maryland University of Integrative Health, even though they're a very well respected college.
0: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah there. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and so there wasn't enough, in, there there's nothing about metabolic psychiatry or metabolic interventions yeah. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of associational studies and stuff like that. Um, I didn't, you know, there's there's a certified mental health integrative practitioner one from evergreen that did not have enough information. So there's really a distinction. I think that for the mental health counselors and the psychiatrists who really um who really want to help with this, they have to understand the difference between nutritional psychiatry and metabolic psychiatry. they're, okay. they're interrelated but there's they're different ball games. Um, and so you can go and get some training in nutritional psychiatry. You can learn that gluten, there's a connection between gluten and depression and, you know, what, what kinds of vitamins and minerals and fish oil and all that good stuff. And that's all really important and useful, but for actual working with people with serious mental illness or treatment resistant types of conditions, um, understanding a ketogenic diet and metabolic psychiatry, I think is, is, is really where you want to put your training. So I loved Georgia Eads training, mm-hmm. diagnosisdiet.com yep. You can find that that was well worth it. And for any prescribers listening that offers continuing medical education credit. So there's no reason to not go and get that, that training there. She's wonderful. Yep. And then advanced ketogenic therapies, Um, They have a beginner course and an advanced ketogenic therapy course that talks about using it with different diagnoses. They're Mm -hmm. also excellent. The two instructors there have been doing it for over 30 years. So there are really great places to get very useful uh, nuts and bolts education about how to help people with this.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, that's super helpful. And Uh, I mean, that's, that's the key. I think we need more, uh, CME credits and more of a virtual platform and just more instruction and more content in this area Mm -hmm. to attract, you know, clinicians and prescribers to be able to acknowledge this and steer their patient on a path to de-prescribing, you know, and that, that could be kind of tricky in that, you know, their toolbox is a toolbox of, of drugs and that's, but uh, even with epilepsy, the brain is much more receptive to pharmacotherapy uh, in the context of a ketogenic diet. The drug uh, Keppra. I remember being uh, invited to and then flying out to Europe uh, to meet with you know the pharmaceutical company along with a lot of people. are epilepsy experts to they were just trying to understand it's more of like a fishing uh expertise to understand how how and why the ketogenic diet enhances the brain's responsiveness to particular anti-epileptic drugs and maybe with the intent to sort of make a druggable form of the ketogenic diet which is an ongoing effort and you know in different just to understand how ketones work and that's a kind of an interesting, you know, discussion there because there's, you know, there's questions as to when you put someone on a ketogenic diet, insulin goes down, glucose variability is stabilized, ketone levels go up. And, and in your patients, do you ask them to, and I know it's a pretty big ask uh, to basically when, if they implement a ketogenic diet to measure ketones, to measure glucose, and do you see any correlation with their ability to achieve and sustain ketosis and the outcomes that you're looking at.
1: I do. So it depends on what they're coming to me for. So again, I take insurance in Washington state. And so I get a whole variety of people willing to do different levels of different things. Um, So for example, I have a, a binge eating person who has a history of low fat diets and tracking constantly and having a lot of stress with that with her. We don't check her ketones. But she's doing fantastic, and she it, it, it's really fixed that binge eating disorder for her. She's doing great, and she's not testing ketones. The people that I do bipolar disorder with, uh, for example, I do ask that they test their ketones because it helps me fine tune stuff. Uh, yeah. Everybody is just a little bit different, so I I do like that, and I think it's a really important behavioral feedback because if they can be like oh. I feel really good. My brain feels really good. I'm going to test. And they get kind of an idea of what that level is, or, oh, my brain does not feel good. Let me test. And they see that there's something going on there. That's a behavioral feedback loop. And if we want them to be able to stay on this diet in order to treat a condition, that's that's data that they need. So I I recommend testing.
0: And it's empowering to them too mm-hmm. to really show that they could change their metabolism in a way. That's really mm-hmm. altering the fuel that their brain is using. And I think if you, yeah, as I'm sure you do coach them into understanding that ketones are an alternative energy and your brain is starting to use not only glucose, but also ketones and more glucose is not better for the brain. There is a glucose hypomit, but uh, similarly, you know, more ketones may not be better too. And I right. do, I get lots of people trying to jack up their ketones to, you know, three, four, five millimolar with exogenous ketones. And some of the research that we do quite frankly, uh, would, and I was a pretty enthusiastic person about getting ketones up high, but much like glucose, you know, like you don't, you wouldn't be chasing high numbers of glucose to deliver. And if you have basically what, what happens is energy toxicity. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've seen it in our animal models when they get their ketones get high, they get sick. Right. And Mm -hmm. the sweet spot for general, like it seems like behavioral, uh, you know, enhancing aspects of behavior, anxiolytic effects and anti-seizure effects and other, even anti-cancer effects, the once higher is not better. And right around like the one to two millimolar range Mm -hmm. is actually pretty good. Unless we study something called central nervous system, oxygen toxicity, which is a very powerful tonic clonic seizure. And in that case, a three to four millimeter millimolar Mm -hmm. elevation of ketones, Is going to be really kind of what we want for that acute, uh, you know, high dose. Uh, But generally speaking, I think, and myself included, I think, and I used to tinker a lot with ketone esters. And I just don't, if I take a large dose of a ketone ester within about two or three hours later, I'll get a headache. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that the high dose of ketones will shut down your endogenous production of ketones. And we don't, because and it's, for me, it's about, a, if I, if there's a Delta of two millimolar of ketones, which is really hard to get with a ketone salt, the electrolyte mm-hmm. salts, which actually give your body electrolytes, which are important, very important with the ketogenic diet, Right. Uh, that does not happen. And I've measured insulin in response to the ketone salt administration, but like, you know, a high dose of one, three butane dial or a ketone ester, uh, the ester that we work with. And then the monoester these things actually will increase insulin. And what happens is you get a very rapid high elevation of ketones, which you kind of feel great during that. But then as the ketone levels drop, you become hypoketotic and hypoglycemic because you'll be releasing insulin. It'll facilitate glucose disposal. Also, the ketones seem to decrease hepatic glucose output. So about two or three hours later, people you know, will report a headache if they're not taking it with food and other things too, right. more likely to happen. So these are some of the considerations I think. I think we have to have an understanding that higher ketones is not better, but it's really about metabolic stability. And if you throw a big hammer into the system, you're causing shifts and alterations and counter-regulatory mechanisms, like for example, an increase in insulin, which can then disrupt things a few hours later. So I think it's really important to, you know, stick with the ketogenic diet supplements are not a replacement. You can, Mm -hmm. they can augment the ketogenic diet, but I think, you know, you want to deliver ketones in metered amounts and then monitor your response to that. I think is an important thing that I've appreciated through all the work we've done in animal models. Some of the human studies we're doing, and also just hundreds of of emails that I get for patients that large doses of exogenous ketones are not, are not the answer and that a more nuanced approach with diet first and foremost. And then we use exogenous ketones, much like MCT. I mean, the MCT based ketogenic has been around forever. And we know that you, you talk to the registered dietitians, you talk to the clinicians, you incorporate MCT into the diet and you get better ketone levels and then better seizure control. So exogenous ketones are just one of the tools, you know, in the toolbox to help with that.
1: Yeah. I remember when I was trying to figure out the ketogenic diet before I started it, I just tried some MCT oil and I did not get Mm -hmm. the same effect that I got Mm -hmm. when I did the ketogenic diet. And now I use uh, MCT oil and I use a little bit of BHB salts um, almost every day. It just makes my brain feel a little bit better. Um, I think it's just a little bit of extra well. energy.
0: Yeah. 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 The combination of exogenous ketones and MCT. You know, if you incorporate uh, the exogenous ketones with the MCT, the MCT will increase your endogenous production, and then the salts too. What I actually I think the electrolytes of sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium that are the MCTs are uh, the BHB is bound to can yeah. be very beneficial. for example, because, uh, I've seen blood work. It usually happens in the first two to three weeks. It'll, you know, there'll be like low sodium, low magnesium, sometimes low, low potassium shows up. So I think it's really important to get the elect the extra electrolytes in because that suppression of insulin has a natriuretic effect where you're dumping more sodium. And if you don't replace that, you're not going to, and you can get some, um, you know, electrolyte issues, they're usually pretty mild and the body compensates pretty fast. But for me, like even someone like me who has been on it for a long time, I feel, I do feel like I need to get an extra salt,
1: mm-hmm. uh, especially
0: living in Florida, you know, sweating a lot and things like yeah. that. And yeah, um, I
1: think it's important yeah I sauna almost every day, and so that, I yeah, good, I think yeah, the electrolytes yeah. I think you're I think the electrolytes really help. I always talk about minerals with clients like those are your spark plugs and you're a race car, and you need a lot of them right oh, yeah. and good so yeah. yeah, they really yeah. they get that um and so so I think it might be the electrolytes that extra calcium and the stuff in there that actually mm-hmm. makes me feel better, yeah,
0: and the consulting that you do uh Nicole is pretty much all telemedicine, right? Yeah. Exclusively telemedicine.
1: Yes, this is my corner. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: cons to, to, to that, uh, are there, and it seems, I mean, it just seems like, I mean, for a counselor, you're not measuring their blood pressure and things like. you can instruct them to do certain things, but do you see any drawbacks to doing, would you do anything different if you were meeting the patient, uh, you know, personally, or do you, do you see any drawbacks to the telemedicine approach that you do?
1: They, I have a functional nutrition background now, a little bit. And so sometimes I wish I was with a client so that I could look at physical signs of nutrient insufficiencies and deficiencies, mm-hmm. but mostly not. Mostly, um, mostly, well, you know, I had an office and then COVID hit. And then my lease came up and I had already been working with patients this way. And I was like, gosh, I don't think I need an office and I'm doing great work and people are getting results. Um, so no, I, I think the telehealth works pretty well, uh, the consulting. And then, you know, people find it to be very useful to be, you know, if they come in from a meeting, they can call me from their car and we can do a check-in or, you know, so there are some people like with young children at home who would really like to go to an office and have some privacy for that, for sure. But for most people, they find it to be really convenient and helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're licensed in Washington State, but you can consult with anybody. I do. United it's States, a different right?
1: relationship. So the way I explain it to people is that in Washington State, uh, I am a therapist, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. And that relationship is I am your therapist. And so that has certain ethical responsibilities and, and things that come with that. If, uh, if you are outside of Washington State, I am a consultant, um, and a life coach, you know, so you can't right. stop being a therapist, you can't stop knowing what you know, as a human and sharing it with people, but you do it in a different context. Yeah. And that's what I tell Um, other licensed mental health counselors or people who are wanting to help people outside of their state of licensure, you can always be a consultant. You can always do life coaching. Not all relationships have to be a psychotherapy relationship and you can still help people learn about this treatment.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there, um, because I'm sure like, a lot, there's a huge need for doing what you're doing. You have an incredibly important uh, position to help people there because people really do need to be coached, but I'm sure you get a diversity of people that reach out to you for help. And I was wondering what is your inclusion and exclusion criteria? If you want to use those terms as we do in clinical trials, (laughs) we kind of We and with ketogenic diet clinical trials, you have to. We learned, you know, the hard way, um, uh, you know, it's a learning curve to set the bar pretty high when you're when the therapy or the intervention is a ketogenic therapy uh, or even like a continuous glucose monitor, because there's like a learning curve to that because we have a clinical trial for that. So, what is your inclusion sort of criteria and exclusion criteria? when you uh are working with a patient.
1: Yeah. So um so I have an online program and I do individual consulting as well. And one of the first things I do when someone reaches out to me is I have a call with them to determine which one makes the most sense for them. So the people that I do put in my online program, um, they have cognitive issues, they have mood issues. It's about brain health my online program basically and but they have to have a certain level of technology to be able to figure out the Zoom. They need to uh, have a, a level of functioning where I think they can follow a lesson and then be able to show up to Q and As to ask questions twice a week, um, and be able to function in a Facebook group. So it's kind of you know it's the kind of the same thing you do as a therapist when you're figuring out if someone's a good fit for you for outpatient or not, yeah. um, and then of course looking at their motivation for doing it and and how excited they are to do it most of the people that i encounter they just want to feel better they just want to be told yeah. how to get there and what to do and how not to flounder
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah they want to feel better and then some people i i decide that there might that individual consulting might be better for them some people because they're already far pretty far along the rails and they're like Basically ketogenic, and they just want to fine tune some stuff, and mm-hmm. that maybe they don't need a, a program that's endless. Should they need it, you know. Um, so I just, you know, if if they are, if they don't have a prescriber, that's an exclusion criteria for me. So if they do right. not have a cooperative prescriber, yeah. I yeah. can't take mm-hmm. them into my program, and I I can't do the ketogenic diet with them because if there is not someone to deal with potentiation effects, and we can talk about what that is then that's potentially dangerous um, because ketogenic diets are really powerful therapies and we have to consider them in the context of other powerful therapies that are medications. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I will tell people, we got to find you a prescriber um, that's willing, that you can have a conversation with about this. And sometimes I will talk to prescribers directly a lot of them are busy, and they yeah, they don't have sure. time. And I'm not a yeah. prescriber. So I just don't have the street cred, right to, to say yeah. to them, Hey, you need to know about this thing. Um, so what I do, a lot of my work is teaching patients to advocate for themselves, teaching mm-hmm. patients that it's okay to find a different prescriber who's actually educated in this, that that is not a betrayal of the patient doctor relationship, people, you know, there's a lot of emotional stuff that comes with starting a ketogenic diet, right? You're changing your food. There's the social stuff and there's the prescriber relationship and the, the, in the past for a lot of these people uh, and like me, and maybe that's why I have a soft spot for it is you, these, these people are, you build a relationship with them because they're, you really want to be helped and they are an authority figure. And it's, it's weird when you come to the place of like, Maybe they don't know what they need to know in order to help me. My cat's yeah. gonna visit us. Um. So, so that is, so that is that piece. So, yeah. Not having a prescriber is an exclusion criteria for me yeah. because it's just it's dangerous. Yeah. yeah,
0: and the conversation that you have. I mean, the ultimate goal is to de-prescribe, right? So you have to have the conversation. Is that your brain, it will be more receptive and potentially you may not need to use these drugs in the next, you know, couple months to years or whatever. And how does that conversation go if you do have that conversation with the prescriber? Because in some cases, you know, the prescriber's role is to prescribe, right? And there's yeah,
1: their algorithm very, is to add, their algorithm yes, is to add.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know, and sometimes there's relationships that the prescriber has with different pharmaceutical companies and things like that. And I kind of came from that world, working in a clinical department Mm -hmm. uh, where I went to many lunches and things like that through my PhD. uh, That I'm kind of very aware of that world. So I guess my question is, maybe simply put, is do you actually have any pushback from their prescribers, uh, or these are just situations that you learn to avoid?
1: Yeah. Well, the way I The way I describe it, the way I learned it from Georgia and the way I talk about potentiation effects, um, I think is really helpful. So I'll, I'll I'll talk about what I say to my patients Mm -hmm. and what I will say and my consultants, consultees, and what I say to prescribers, if I can get them on the phone to return my call. And that is, um, ketogenic diets improve brain health which makes brains more sensitive to things like substances and medications. And so the prescription amount, the dosage that this, that you're on now, at some point, that's fine. Now that's helping your symptoms. Now may become too high for you as your brain heals. And as you're on a ketogenic diet or whatever's going on there sensitivity wise, and you might get side effects, suddenly from medications that you've been on for many, many years on a ketogenic diet. And so what needs to happen is um, your prescriber. And again, I have to be very careful. I'm not a prescriber. I'm not even supposed to talk about this stuff. Right. But, but what your prescriber might want to do is lower the dosage of your medication for one to two days to see if there's an improvement in those symptoms Mm -hmm. that might be potentiation effects that might be side effects from too high of a dose. And we might want to be very careful about adding medications. There are instances where that makes sense. um, Bipolar disorder, early days, hypomania, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, But but really, we want to test for potentiation effects very carefully. Mm -hmm. Um, And people understand that, but they Mm -hmm. don't... Here's the thing. They don't... It's why it's important to work with someone, I think. If you're on psychotropic medications or anticonvulsant medications or any medications, it's important to work with someone because as you get those side effects, you're not going to make that connection. Like a good example. I have a lovely man I work with who was on a, you know, a high dose of Wellbutrin and sure as clockwork about six to eight weeks into his ketogenic diet that he was doing really well at. He got really high suicidality out of the blue. Mm. And I'm like, We better get that, you know, you got to go to your prescriber and get that checked. And we talked about potentiation effects, but quite frankly, you know, when you're in that state, it's really hard to self-advocate for yourself. He came back on more medications, a higher dosage and a second medication. And he just now finally weaned himself off, not himself. He did not wean himself off. He worked with someone to wean himself back down, but he was like, oh my gosh, Nicole, you were right. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, they went in the wrong direction. So so when, you know, Chris and, and I and Georgia and anybody else, you know, Rachel talk about uh, potentiation effects and having to work with a prescriber, that's what we're talking about. You're, you're not going to necessarily make that connection. Georgia told us to uh, have our patients go on Google, look up the side effects for their current medications, print them out and put them on the fridge. Maybe she didn't yeah. say the fridge. That might be me, but you, you put them up and you watch for them. You watch for them because potentiation effects happen three and to six prescriber's weeks.
0: Prescribers not going to be necessarily completely transparent or have the time to kind of walk you through all that. And yeah. I think the prescriber's goal should be <laughs> in a perfect world, right? Is to deprescribe. So less is always better in, in the case, you know, in the context of, Carbohydrate restriction with type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who could argue? What endocrinologists or doctor could argue that less insulin is better? If you have a glycemic uh, HBA1C that is maintained at you know five point six off, you know, ten IU's of insulin relative to eighty IU's, which is something that I've seen actually. Uh, my student, uh, now Dr. Andrew Kootnik was a type one diet diabetic. And when he came mm-hmm. to the lab, I was a little hesitant to kind of advocate for him to do that. I knew, cause I always would kind of like when I gave lectures be like, well, if you're type one di- diabetic, you know, you wouldn't want to consider a, a ketogenic diet, right. but then, uh, he came in and he had a couple close calls, you know, following more of a standard diet transitioned into a, a low carb ketogenic diet it worked remarkably well for him. He's been a patient advocate. He did a TEDx talk talking about the use of a low carbohydrate restriction for type one diabetes, which is very controversial, but, uh, Mm -hmm. the science is really emerging that carbohydrate restriction is a really important, uh, approach for type one diabetes just to reduce insulin. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, you know, I get a lot of, you know, students will reach out to me and also get a lot of emails from people who are on drugs like Adderall which are amphetamines yes. and you know they will they've got success with fasting and the ketogenic diet and this is a very high you know I teach upper level graduate students medical students and I've come to realize that the use of of these stimulants of these amphetamines is quite high in in these students and I've had students say you know fasting is like my adderall <laughs> like my attention mm-hmm. my i just narrows in and and also i've had students say you know thank you for recommending that ketone supplement that you know this ketone supplement is now my new adderall like yeah. i've been able to get off the dose so i go days with it and without it and i feel better without it and i have more focus mm-hmm. so this is i mean this is really important because you know otherwise they think they just need it for the rest of their lives Right. so uh so i'm not you know i think there's a time and place for using these adhd drugs but i do sure. think they're very over prescribed and i think that maybe they're more appropriate for the adult uh you know that's farther along in life and i know if they're used early on like in kids they can rewire your brain in good and and bad ways so i think we need to appreciate uh, but yeah, I've got quite a few emails, you know, from students that are doing ketogenic diets, fasting, and just taking exogenous ketones, and it's like kind of like this is my this is my my Adderall, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that's really heartwarming to to see that because they don't feel that dependence on this powerful drug that, yeah. that they feel I've that seen they need that too. it.
1: Yeah. I've seen that too. So I, a lot of my patients and my people that I work with in my program, they have been able to go down off their Adderall or not, not potentially need it. Um, yeah. which, which that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And if you abruptly stop Adderall, it could unmask depression mm-hmm. too, in some cases. So I've communicated with, you know, uh, people and students that, you know, they were on Adderall, they got off and it can unmask sort of mm-hmm. uh, depression symptoms and things like that. So, yeah. uh, but it's just so common. And I think, uh, I do think it's a problem that's not talked about as much as it should be. And I don't know if it's just something in upper level academia, but but I, I do think it's a problem. And, and I do think nutrition is a big part of the solution. It is
1: a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think that I think there's there's some really serious nutritional deficiencies going on in the general population, yeah. and their brains are not working well. And it's getting a diagnosis of ADHD when really they're just not getting the basic things their brain needs to work. Like that was my I next get
0: question actually. Uh, yeah, you- I get your toolbox, like, do you look for nutritional deficiencies? Do you do blood work? Do you do, like, I've been doing the Genova testing, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what's in your toolbox for assessing the nutritional deficiencies?
1: So um, I, I think about, I think about things in terms of the brain hypometabolism. I think about them in terms of neuroinflammation. And I think about nutrients as uh mitochondrial upregulators and necessary for detoxification. Um, and so I love to put people on a good trace mineral supplement. I love to put them on a good, usually methylated B, although that's not always necessary for everyone. Um, I, I like to use certain things like, um, like when I fixed my brain, I got probably 80, of the way there, but I would still have days with a lot of kind of some brain fog going on. So for me, doing a nutrigenomics analysis was really helpful Mm -hmm. because I found out I don't make choline at all. And so I added a little bit of alpha GPC and that just turned the lights on the rest of the way. And suddenly I had that focus and more brain energy because that's the precursor to acetylcholine, right? And so so there's stuff that that. I-
0: I've used that alpha GPC is pretty powerful. It gives me a headache. If I take too much, it's in the product uh, keto brains, which uh, like one scoop is enough. I've done like four to six scoops and it was giving me, it's like overstimulation, but uh, yeah, it's, I learned that it's pretty powerful and you get some symptoms of like too much uh, acetylcholine if if you use too much, but it's just, it's great that there's products that are supplements out there that have drug like effects like alpha GPC and theanine and, you know, some other things yeah. out there. You know, so that was really helpful. Is great too.
1: <laughs> you need that choline also in order to di- digest fats, you need it yep. for brain structures, right. To, to heal your brain. Mm-hmm. So that was really helpful. So I like a nutrigenomics analysis. That's part of my online program. I teach people how to do that part. Um, and I, I don't do too much testing. I do some serum blood level testing, just very simple things. I like to mm-hmm. run Um, patient's blood work through a functional blood chemistry analysis software that just looks, you know, the ranges are a little more functional instead of the Mm -hmm. normal sick ranges. gives me some clues about what might be working well and what might not. Um, And people really like that and find that to be very helpful. It generates a report they can bring to their practitioners. A lot of Mm -hmm. the people I work with are seeing naturopaths or functional medicine people. Um, Mm -hmm. Not everybody's just in the conventional medical yeah. system i you know i get a lot of people where that hasn't worked for them and they're trying different things understandably yeah. so those are the things i mean when i get someone who i know is not who is going to be overwhelmed by me picking and choosing supplements for them based on how they're presenting or any type of functional uh, nutrition analysis i will put them on a broad spectrum micronutrient like hardy's nutritionals is excellent it's a canadian company um, and it just has some a really good broad spectrum micronutrient. And I actually learned about that from Psychiatry Redefined, had a child and adolescent symposium. And one of the doctors there was talking about how she uses broad spectrum micronutrients with her ADHD population of children and adolescents. And it means less stimulant medication. Again, the brain works better when it has what it needs. Yeah. And I get people... You know, high schoolers that are like, I need you to evaluate me for ADHD. And I say, I can't possibly evaluate you for ADHD until we make sure your brain has some of the basic things it needs to function. I can't assess Mm -hmm. your functioning because you don't have the basic building blocks. You're eating a tiny amount of protein. I don't even think you have enough to make your neurotransmitters. (laughs) You know, I mean, we so I always do that with them first. Um, That's something in my toolbox.
0: Yep. And then sugary caffeinated drinks Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's so important that you say that to them because they need to, you need to look at what they're doing or what they're not doing, but what, what they're doing in regards to their nutrition. And, uh, yeah, I was communicating with a friend yesterday that works in the behavioral division of a school. And, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of behavioral issues that I think are linked to, uh, nutritional deficiencies maybe, but it's, you know, it's energy toxicity in regards. So you got sugar and then a lot of caffeine, you know, these energy drinks are kind of ubiquitous in the schools and stuff and just sugary uh, sodas and stuff,
1: which are further yeah. nutrient depleting.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's a vicious yeah. cycle that needs to be acknowledged first. So another, just a couple, I know we're running up on, on time. I still have like, we may we'll probably have to do a part two, but, uh, but I have a couple more questions, uh, hormone etiology. So do you, in any cases, you know, with, with women, especially going through menopause and males going through andropause or whatever you want to call it, do you, uh, do you look at thyroid? Do you look at like testosterone, estrogen, or other hormones? Uh, and, and also I forgot to ask. What percentage of your patients are males versus females? And do you look at hormones as a potential uh, contributor to some of the issues that you're treating?
1: Yeah. So, again, I have a a functional background. So, when I see hormone disruption, my first thought is not uh, to supplement with hormone replacement. It's what are the estrogenics and the hormone disruptors and lifestyle factors that you're being exposed to first? So, there's a lot of environmental you know, xenoestrogens going on, you know, there's, there's some foods that can really increase estrogen. Um, So I, I kind of think of it as when the body is functioning well, I think that hormone production improves really well. So I, again, I'm not a functional medicine practitioner, so I don't get all up in the hormones and the testing and that type of thing. Now I will test thyroid And I will look at, look for any kind of uh, thyroid autoimmunity stuff going on because I do like to use iodine. Uh, The brain needs iodine, right? It's a glandular organ. And I think that that is not uh, used enough in, in, in treatment and in preventative medicine. Um, But so I'll check for that. But the, you know, I think I just don't think that, and this might be, you know, I might be sharing, showing some ignorance here. I'm not sure. I'm still, you know, how we evolve and how we see things and how we look at things. But I just don't think we went through menopause, you know, 10,000 years ago and were debilitated by it. I don't think we had to stop everyone because we were having a hot flash. I I think that we are equipped for, you know, our adrenals to take over and to make what we need as women um Mm -hmm. and possibly with appropriate lifestyle factors, gentlemen with testosterone and women Mm -hmm. testosterone too. But I I think that I think that the the hormone replacement thing, I you know, and there's also some stuff around ApoE4 and whether the Mm -hmm. hormone replacement is useful for that population. We're Mm -hmm. not testing for that. So I, I was reading a post by a nutrigenomics expert who had mentioned that but couldn't really show me the the research on it. So I just think it's a It's one of those areas that I feel like HRT might be being used as a Band-Aid instead of increasing mitochondrial function and see if our organs can do what they were meant to do. My Um, thoughts
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, really? Yeah. I I have kids. I mean, I'm going to call them kids. I mean, I have kids in their twenties in their thirties and that are jumping on HRT, just like a low dose HRT they have no idea. They're listening to all these podcasts talking about all the benefits of HRT. Yeah. And these kids are like in their twenties and thirties, which if you legitimately have a problem, many of them are suppressing it through the use of other, you know, uh, performance enhancing compounds and things like that, or they know how to hack their blood work to show basically to show, you know, that they, they're testosterone deficient and the clinics are very quick to write a prescription and to profit off these kids. Uh, and then they're kind of hooked, you know, on it. And I I think it's a dangerous path. Uh, conversely though, if you really need it, testosterone and other hormone, like a hormone balance is, is intimately linked to mitochondrial function. So if you are, uh, low levels of hormone that if you restore hormones, then that could really augment mitochondrial function. So I think that's important, under yeah. but you may not need testosterone. It's like, you know, I've uh, used DHEA in like a small dose and see that, oh, I, that seem, seems to balance. And I've done a lot of hormone testing uh, to see it, that it gets me into the optimal range instead of low normal, then it gets me yeah. into mid to high normal. But, you know, it's like something that you can get off Amazon or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, and I'm also, you know, approaching 50 or whatever, but, uh, but, I, but I think that yeah, I think the the HRT discussion is a discussion that is just it's too much of the discussion, really. And I think the appreciation that you have for lifestyle factors needs to be first and foremost addressed one hundred percent before there's any any movement yeah. to an HRT protocol.
1: Well, yeah. and I think it. I think that so, like when I when I was developing my online program, and I was looking for brain fog populations and doing research, um. I would go, there's a Facebook site, a Facebook group, and it it was about brain fog for women. And I thought, oh, I should be in this group and and participate in this. And what it was, it was these women who were on HRT for brain fog and only HRT for Mm -hmm. brain fog. And it just kind of broke my heart because I would see these posts. They're like, it's not getting better. I feel terrible. I still feel awful. I still have brain fog. And I'm thinking this is doing these women such a disservice because it is much more likely that they have brain hypometabolism going on in middle age and that they need an alternative fuel source for the brain. And just throwing these hormones at them is not doing the trick. And you could see it was almost like Am I doing it wrong? I must be doing it wrong. I must need to wait another three or four or five or six months to let this hormone therapy work. And I'm thinking that is months that your brain is starving for energy. And that is months that we are allowing an additional neurodegenerative process to happen. And so I think HRT can sometimes be lazy root cause medicine. And I think we do people (laughs) a disservice.
0: That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, uh, I just have one I wish I had more time uh, I, we we hit on so many important aspects here i'm I'm so excited to share this uh, once it comes out on metabolic link podcast but um uh, but before the last question, because I know we're coming up on time and I appreciate your your time today. So the education outreach that you're doing is really fantastic. And I think that is an equally or maybe even more important role because you're touching, you're hitting so many more people than instead of just working one-on-one with them uh, through your blog and through Twitter and just general social media. So maybe talk a little bit about that and the motivation that you have for doing that and your approach because social media can be exhausting. And, yeah. and actually can trigger, you know, so you know, behavioral, <laughs> negative behavioral consequences if you're too addicted to it, which I think yeah. a lot of kids are just, you know, and watching some of the nieces and nephews and things, but they seem to have it under control. But so what are your, what's your approach to doing that and putting out content and what's your kind of future approach for education outreach?
1: Yeah. So when when I went back to my doctor and I said, "Hey, I did this ketogenic diet and I feel so much better." And he's like, "Oh, an anti-inflammatory diet." And I'm thinking, "You knew about an anti-inflammatory diet, you didn't offer it to me?" I don't think he knew what a ketogenic diet was, but I think that, you know, when when we go through a transformation like this, I think that anger happens. We're like, "Why wasn't this offered?" Like that was years of really difficult health And I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. You hear it all the time from people like, why wasn't this offered to me? Why wasn't this given as an option? With
0: epilepsy. Yeah. I mean, Jim Abrams, the Charlie Foundation, how it got started. He was just so upset. It was not offered to him as an option.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so I just feel compelled. I don't know the right word, but I feel compelled that people get to know all the ways they can feel better. And there is so much good science and so much experience around this, and it should be offered. Um, And so I just really want people to know that. And I want them to understand that there is a scientific literature supporting a lot of the underlying mechanisms by which we believe this is working. And so um, I always, you know, I... I try to be positive on my social media because I think that it's really easy to get stuck in that anger place of, you know, the systems, the systems screwed and corrupt and big pharma's on, you know, going to do all these things and it's going to keep this from people and people aren't going to. And I don't think that's what's happening. I think yeah. that. Because people feel a moral obligation to talk about how much better they got after using a ketogenic diet, I think that these stories are going to continue to go out. I think people are going to continue to learn about all these ways. I think the system is absolutely going to change. Um, And so I like to focus on that part. I like to say, hey, here's the science and here's all the cool convergence of research and clinicians and super smart people that are working really hard to help you know all the ways you can feel better. And that's exciting. So I try to do it from that place. I
0: love the positivity approach because there's so much negative negativity. Yeah. online and that's what turns a lot of people off. I mean, it's pretty easy to be negative. I mean, you can criticize anything, right? I mean, yeah. there's big pharma and big food, big sugar. I heard someone who's big keto, like the keto <laughs> market is uh but yeah, it's so easy to be negative. So I really appreciate that you're putting positive information out there and 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 how can people uh, find you, uh, mm-hmm. on, on, I mean, just Google your name. I'm sure your website comes up But maybe mention your social handles and, and your website and, and how people can best find you.
1: Well, I'm most active on Twitter lately. I've found that if you try to make content for multiple platforms, you just burn out really bad. So right now uh, I'm focused okay. on Twitter. Um, I'm at keto counselor there. And my website, mentalhealthketo.com. There's lots of good resources on that. Mm -hmm. You can email me at nicole at mentalhealthketo.com. And you can also learn more about my online program and stuff all on that website.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Nicole. Thank you for uh, giving up your time for this today and for doing this educational outreach for the Metabolic Link Podcast. Uh, We might have to do a part two. Uh, That's fine. Thank you again for doing what you do and for spearheading and being a major cog in the wheel that's, that's growing in metabolic psychiatry. And we have to really thank the Jen and David Bazuki and the Bezucki Brain yeah. Research Foundation for, you know, creating uh, a path uh, to grow this movement and you're intimately linked into that path and, yeah. and doing so much work on that front. So yeah. thank you again yeah. for doing what you're doing and being on this podcast.
1: Thank you for being on podcasts that I could listen to and save my brain with so many years ago. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the metabolic link. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others, leave a comment, leave a review, and also follow us on social media at metabolic health summit. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.